This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we have for you a message from Jim Wirt, who serves as a ruling elder at In-Town Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia. This message was originally recorded in June 2016 at the PCA General Assembly in Mobile, Alabama. Okay, he's back. Some of you are probably fairly saying to yourselves, okay, here we go. The ruling elder has decided he's going to pre... No, he's going to exhort. And I'll tell you, if um, it is true that the number of prayers and prayers that have told me that they're supporting me are, are translatable into a decent sermon, this is... Go- oh, sorry, exhortation. This is going to be a fantastic exhortation. But you may fairly also be asking your question, the question, how long do you think this is going to take? I love the how long question. It's why I decided more than a year ago that I would use Habakkuk. And I'll get to that. But the first thing Habakkuk asks at the front of the book is that question. How long? How long? And I think it's a great question. It's a heart-level question that hits most of us every day. It's a question that opens up windows, if we're honest, to our frustrations, our anxieties, our anger, and I'm not talking about just traffic. How long will I suffer this illness or this disability or this depression? How long are they going to stay angry at me? How long should I keep trying to make my job or this pastorate work. And for anybody who knows me, how long do you think it's going to take him before he gets to his first Lord of the Rings reference? Just wait. We've been asking this how long question since we've been able to verbalize thought. How long until we eat? How long until we get there? And we'll be asking this question most likely with our dying breath. How long do I actually have? How long, Lord Jesus, until I can be with you, or ideally until you come back? Habakkuk, as I said, is one of my favorite books in Scripture. In fact, my wife and I have it inscribed on the inside of our wedding ring, that last section that's in your worship guide. And that how long question is how Habakkuk initiates this transforming conversation with God. And he puts a robust a personal edge on how he asked that question. Listen to Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? 
but you will not listen. Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. It's like Habakkuk has been reading the current headlines. I admire his boldness. I admire even more the underlying worldview that he has as he asks that how long question. We can see that Habakkuk is absolutely convinced about the sovereign power of God to intervene in any circumstance. How long? He's consumed by a passion for justice and for righteousness. He's clear in his condemnation and in his specificity about the nature of evil. It's, it's like he could be a Presbyterian. I've been thinking about the remarks that I'm making um, for more than a year now. And as I prepared, I obviously consulted with some of my more experienced friends in the pulpit. One of them, who apparently was sensitive to a common ruling elder pitfall, had this to say. Please don't give us an ain't-it-awful sermon. You may know the type, a litany of problems, starting with our cultural and our, our national context, and they, they roll back to the issues that might be facing us, the controversies at our home church, or, or maybe the things that are on our General Assembly's docket. Things like racism, or feminism, or liberalism, or picurism. But unfortunately, I need to at least begin, like Habakkuk, with the awfulness. And that's because, when I started thinking about the fact that I'd be up here, I started paying attention to the cultural context of the last 12 months that we've just lived through. So Habakkuk's question in that context is my question. How long is this going to last? On June 17th, 2015, literally um, the week after our last General Assembly and just a few days ago today, last year, Dylan Roof, a white racist, killed nine people after sitting through an hour-long prayer meeting at Emanuel AMA Church in Charleston, South Carolina, including two of their pastors. How long? Among some of my other reactions, and knowing that I was going to be using Habakkuk, I started making a list. At one point, my plan had been to read you a month-by-month account of the ain't it awful stuff that has happened over the last year. But knowing that the how long question in our circles has a supreme example in sermon length or exhortation length, I decided not to go there. But suffice it to say that it included destabilizing Supreme Court rulings, justifiable racial unrest, global refugee crises, transgender bathroom debates, and even a Villanova victory over UNC in the final four. At least it wasn't Duke. And that list included more shootings. Lots and lots of shootings. Candidly, I I don't even need to recap anything except the last month. And it's not even over yet. I might be able to just stick with Orlando. June the 2nd, 
Brock Turner is sentenced to six months in jail after being convicted on three counts of sexual assault near Stanford University, sparking a national outrage over judicial leniency at least, and maybe rape culture and white privilege at worst. June the 10th, Christina Grimmie, a former reality TV star and contestant and by reports a Christian, is shot and killed by a random stalker in Orlando. June the 12th, an apparently radicalized ISIS supporter attacks an Orlando nightclub catering to the gay and lesbian community, and he kills 49 people for reasons we're still trying to determine. It's the biggest mass public shooting by an individual in the, the history of this country. June the 16th, a member of the British Parliament, Joe Cox, is stabbed to death in broad daylight, apparently by a mentally disturbed neo-Nazi who wants Britain to exit the European community. Violence, injustice, conflict, destruction, perversion. My wife, who is one of the most compassionate, hopeful, and discerning people I know, said this. He put it like this. The world is broken. For, for how long? In sharp contrast, we come to Habakkuk's final words all the way at the end of the book. Uh, it's what's included in the front of your worship guide. We didn't read it. By the time he gets to that section of Habakkuk, he has completely transformed his attitude and his heart. What he says is this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. How in the world does Habakkuk get from here to there? From how long to yet I will rejoice? I, I really want to know the answer to that question. I want to know it because I hate waiting. And about the only way I normally get from how long to rejoicing is if I have some immediate remediation, ideally accompanied by compensatory retribution. So, is the meal taking too long? Get the chef out here and ideally throw in a free appetizer or a dessert. Stuck on the tarmac for three hours? Let the captain grovel before my feet and give me some free, frequent flyer miles. I might be okay. The wife's taking too long to get ready? Never happens. <laughs> but God, in contrast, does two things to transform Habakkuk. And candidly, they're not only counterintuitive, they're frightening. First, he literally blows up Habakkuk's world and his worldview. And second, he declares a series of inescapable, a five-fold chorus of judgment. Yay! The exhortation is going to include a lot of judgment. This is, and so God's response is not this, I'm sorry, Habakkuk, I'll get right on that. Or, I'm so glad you were finally paying attention to what I had in mind. Or, good job, we're finally on the same page. Or, or even, allow me to explain some things that you might have missed. God's response to Habakkuk is along the lines of Job chapter 40, which I think of as Habakkuk the extended cut. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. 
This is, this is the kind of response that says, sorry, may I withdraw the question? Will somebody please rule me out of order? I'm not going to go too much into the blowing up Habakkuk's world part, but the context for this book is the last sputtering days of the tribe of Judah. Israel has already been taken into captivity about 100 to 150 years ago. So think of that in our context as about the end of the Civil War right up until the William Howard Taft presidency. Current stuff might have faded. The law was rediscovered in the shambles of the temple back in 1995, which is the first Clinton administration or our 23rd General Assembly. So, and it looks like King Josiah is going to make Judah great again. But then his idiot son, Joachim, gets into office eight years ago, and we've been in a serious downhill slide ever since. Corruption, idolatry, perversion, injustice, and Habakkuk says, how long? So God's first response is, behold, I am raising up the Nazgul. No, wait, he's going to raise up the Babylonians, and they're coming to wipe you out. And then God goes into some gory detail in describing how awful the Babylonians are. Imagine your least favorite presidential candidate. That may be hard. I know it's a tough issue for many of us. This response is worse than that individual getting elected and turning out to be five to ten times worse than the worst case scenario that MSNBC or Fox News, you take your pick, has predicted is the most dire scenario. It's worse than that. This is Sauron recaptures the one ring territory. So this is Habakkuk's response for the rest of the chapter, of of chapter 1 up until the beginning of chapter 2. First, he is rocked back on his heels in disbelief. And second, he decides that he will will withdraw and watchfully wait. Who can blame him? So rocked back on his heels, he says things like, surely we're not going to die, are we? Uh, You're sovereign in all that, God, but, but come on, you're pure too. So how can you tolerate the treacherous, and be silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. That's right. Habakkuk actually plays the relative righteousness card. He says, hey, we're not as bad as the Nazis or mass murderers or that other political party or that other denomination, or I think it's a camp in our own denomination. Danger, Will Robinson. See, I can use more geeky references than just... Lord of the Rings. So he's rocked back on his heels and he's watchfully waiting. As in, I will stand on my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look and see what he will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint in Habakkuk 2.1. Do you see how he's distancing himself? Withdrawing and cocooning himself in his, his almost righteous indignation. You can see it in his pronouns where, O Lord, has turned from he into him, or uh, from you to him. I'm right there with him, rocked on our heels, watchfully waiting. That might be exactly your posture right now as you consider our cultural context or life in your home church or or even this general assembly. It may be exactly the, the posture that God wants us and you and me. 
But here's the thing, and I'll try to speak only for myself. I hate it. I hate to wait, but even more, I hate to be out of control. You can come and talk to me about my New Zealand wheelchair episode after, after tonight. I'm wired to want to do something, and I want to do it now, and I hope God manages to keep up. Some of you may have similar feelings about issues that will be before us at the General Assembly. Racial reconciliation, biblical and doctrinal fidelity, greater clarity on integrating women more fully into the ministries of our church, staying on mission rather than quibbling over administrivia and minutia. I am right there with you. I am fed up with the ain't it awful stuff and the scenarios. I want to move on. I want to respond. I want to do it specifically and concretely. And unfortunately, that's where phase two of God's response to Habakkuk fits in. His litany of judgment. Five woes, not hold on, but W-O-E, in Habakkuk chapter 2. I wish I could ignore them or deflect them or redirect them. I bet Habakkuk did too. But they cut too closely. I'm a strategist by profession. I get paid to come up with solutions. So here are my preferred five strategies to deal with a broken world that looks out of control. I'm sorry it's five. I understand it's not three. They don't even alliterate, but you have to cut me some slack. I'm a ruling elder, and I've only done this exhortation thing a couple times. So here's, here's strategy one. Throw resources at the problem. If we get just the right plan, if we get the right leader, or if we get the right findings from an appropriately populated and thoroughly exegeted study committee, we should be able to come up with some decent options, a clear path forward, even better if we can secure some timely and generous funding. I want the silver bullet. And if I'm, ser I'm serious about that, I'm a management consultant. I, uh, that kind of strategy development and resource mobilization is my stock and trade. But, but here's the problem with this resource play. It has serious pitfalls. Uh, first, the presumption of my correctness. I know what's really going on. I know how to fix it. I just need to pile up some support and get you guys on my page, and then we get moving. That'll work. Or the primacy of my own agenda. Now, because I'm a Presbyterian, I'll likely dress that up with altruistic terms or some scripture references, but what this ultimately boils down to is I want things to go my way. That's, that's what I am at my heart. Even more, I want to defend my independence with that resource accumulation. The strategy is really about my personal autonomy. The well-done, good, and faithful servant thing that we all want that commendation so much, for me, if I'm completely honest about it, is is too often my wanting God to admit that he could not have done it without me. I'm seeking to be right. I'm seeking control. Ultimately, I'm seeking, I'm seeking to steal glory for myself. So we hit Habakkuk 2.6, God's first woe of judgment. And God puts it in extreme terms, which is probably necessary to break through my, my noisy, hardened heart. He says this, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? 
Do you see how God throws the how long question right back at Habakkuk? Because you have plundered, you will be plundered. Sure, God is probably talking about the Babylonians here, but the sting is is starting to extend to Habakkuk. And it's starting to extend to me too, if I'm honest. So, ouch. Okay, forget strategy one. Strategy two, build a counter kingdom. That'll work. It's not all bad. I've read my my First Peter 2. I get that we're a peculiar people, not of this world, set apart to be salt and light, aliens and strangers in a strange land. I embrace the idea. I really do, of the aspiration of becoming a greater source of hope and mercy and justice and courage and truth in a world where those virtues seem to be becoming increasingly illusory, yet desperately needed. But my version of the counterculture or the Christian counter-kingdom usually doesn't stop there. Too often I fall victim to either a militant nostalgia or a manipulative myopia about how I want the world to be and how I want the world to behave. I want to make America not great. I want to make America Christian again and pretend that there's some legitimacy to that kind of a claim. Or maybe I'll be more modest. I just want my church or my denomination to recapture its former glory. And I'm pretty sure what that looks like. I desire for God to deliver my version of a healthy family or a community or a country or a city or a kingdom. I want a burger kingdom. I want it my way. Candidly, it's no wonder that the world, or at least some in the world, can look at me with suspicion. When they look at me, I honestly can't blame them for seeing my inclination towards manipulation rather than my mercy. They see my sanction rather than my sacrifice. They see my suspicion rather than my sincere hospitality. Or maybe they don't see me or us as a threat at all. Maybe we've just become irrelevant. Have you noticed the way that prayer has been discounted in the current cultural conversation? Lose the thoughts and the prayers. Give us some action. Some now say in their anger and in their desperation. The disciples weren't any different. In the face of Jesus' constant counterintuitive teaching about the nature of God's kingdom, they were so firmly fixed on their own separate version for how this kingdom thing should work out that Jesus finally rebukes Peter with about the worst critique imaginable. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men in Mark 8. So there we head back to Habakkuk 2 again. He says, God says, Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. But I want to escape ruin. What's so bad about escaping ruin? That living sacrifice, lambs among wolves thing is mainly rhetorical, isn't it? What about the children? It's usually a reliable fallback. And God says, you have shamed your own house and forfeited your life. God tells the Babylonians and Habakkuk, 
and maybe me. So ouch again. Okay, strategy three then. We've got to play by the world's rules. Beat them at their own game. Innocent as doves, but shrewd as snakes, right? That's Matthew 10. The temptation to bend the rules in our favor because, after all, our cause is righteous and just, it shows up a lot of ways in a lot of places. In politics, it looks like packing the courts so that we've got people on there that lean our way or gerrymandering election districts so that uh, we get favorable outcomes. In business, it means sacrificing families to put in the hours that are necessary, maybe cutting a few ethical corners in service to the bottom line in my bonus. Playing by worldly rules can look like what can we learn from the pro-choice or the gay rights advocacy groups and strategies to magnify our own voice and effectiveness in the culture wars. In churches, bless our collective hearts, principled intervention, mobilizing informal circles of concern, filing complaints that devolve into schisms and gossip and deflection, all in the name of church health and purity and peace. And I have to confess, even here at General Assembly, I can risk assuming that good order is synonymous with loving one another well. And for me, that's the heart of the problem. I am convinced that when I pay, when I pay too much attention to rules, even if blessed Robert himself wrote them, I pay less attention to love. And please don't label me an antinomian, anti-Roberts Rulesian on that point. My own pastor, Jimmy Agan, I haven't found him, shout out, Jimmy, wherever you are, um, recently pointed this out in a sermon where he said, whenever you hear God's law, it comes in the context of a loving relationship. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. I've loved you. I saved you. That's why you should have no other gods before me. Jesus sums up all the law and the prophets with love the Lord your God and love your neighbors as yourself. That's the essential rule. That's the best order. So that in every debate, every motion, every point of order, every interaction, every particle of business that we conduct here or elsewhere, we need to be applying this law of love, of selfless, sacrificial, spirit-powered love. Or we risk wasting our time at best or corrupting it in the world around us. What if you had to choose your Bible or your job? What if you had to choose your faith or your freedom? Persecuted Christians in more than 70 nations are making those choices every day. Hear their stories and be inspired by their faithfulness every week on the VOM Radio podcast. The Voice of the Martyrs Radio allows you to hear each week from Christians who personally faced persecution or those working for the gospel in hostile and restricted nations. How do they overcome? How is the gospel advancing in the face of opposition and persecution? What inspires them to be faithful? And how can we pray for our spiritual family members in hostile and restricted nations? Visit vomradio.net or find VOM Radio on your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Your faith will never be the same. vomradio.net Habakkuk 2.12 speaks to the extremity of playing by worldly rules. It says, Woe to him who builds 
a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Bloodshed. Crime? I'm an exemplar of piety and charity and chastity and equanimity. Just don't go looking under my hood. My plan of attack, whatever it is I happen to be attacking, I promise is going to be honorable and effective and reserved and above all necessary. I'm confident that God will bless it. But here's the judgment that God proclaims in Habakkuk 2.14 after pointing out that all of our labor is fuel for the fire, not to mention exhausting. He says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, wait a minute. That's a promise, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's a plaque on the foyer to our mission field. It's, it's the, uh, the motivational bumper sticker that, that impassions us to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's true, it is. But it's also a word of judgment. It's a reminder that God's purpose and power and presence is inexorable, inescapable, bigger than our problems, and far, far bigger than our self-motivated potential contributions. On this point, specifically with regards to the church, I have a personal beef, and it's this. We are prone to throw one another and even ourselves under the proverbial bus, and this is what it looks like. I think our denomination's doomed unless we fill in your own blank. We should probably leave. There are more peaceful denominations, aren't there? That church won't last two years the way they're going. I'm glad I left. That member or ruling elder or pastor probably has some deep-seated psychological issues, at least emotional ones. They're beyond me to figure out Professional help is the only way. For me personally right now, who am I kidding? I think I could preach at General Assembly with all these preachers in the room. There's no way I'm going to escape tonight without getting pilloried, and that's not even before I get to the online commentary, curse the simulcast. So here's my response to those kinds of behaviors. How dare we? How dare we? Do we presume to know all the angles and contingencies? Do we presume to even understand what God is actually up to in entirety? Do we presume that Jesus cannot show up and save even when things look dire and hopeless? Maybe even especially when they look dire and hopeless? Or are we really just depending on the world's wisdom and the world's rules? Beloved, it's not up to us. Our strength, our wisdom, our plan of attack, our leadership skills, the eloquence of a repentant proclamation or firm and human resolve to do better. It's not even, dare I say, up to our beloved Book of Church Order or Westminster Confession. And believe me, I love them. They are my friends. But Habakkuk, church, hear this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's more rebuke, but it's also maybe a sign of hope. So I move on to strategy four. It may be my favorite one. Vilify the enemy. As a human, I tend to thrive when I can focus on what I think is wrong in the world. And even better, if I can look at that in my job or my church 
whatever my context, when I can distill that down, not just to what is wrong, but to who is wrong. The internal monologue of my story works better if I can identify the villain of that story. Again, don't get me wrong, I believe in the reality of evil and the need for disciplinary action and intervention and in a real devil who wreaks real havoc. But for the most part, while some of us may self-identify as the villains in our story, I find it's a lot cleaner and simpler when I can assign that role with the accompanying blame to somebody else. It's even better when I can dress that up with a dash of appropriate self-justification, a veneer of rationalization, and maybe a little indignation. What's wrong with this country is the illegal and the undocumented immigrants. No, it's, it's the LGBTQT community. That's what's wrong. No, it's the NRA. It's liberals. Maybe it's conservatives. Maybe it's just the extremists on either pole. It's deadbeat welfare recipients or cold-hearted Wall Street bankers and lobbyists. It's, it's lawyers. It's management consultants. It's politicians. It may be politicians. But. <laughs> what's wrong with my church? is that relentless critic or those intractable elders, the pastor who's in over his head, who's not preaching the full gospel, who's gotten too impressed with himself. It's Arminians. It's hyper-Calvinists. It's legalists. It's antinomians. What's wrong with my marriage is her or him. Maybe the kids. At least give me my mother-in-law. My point is not to try to take sides on any of those camps or any of those communities or individuals. It's to point out that deep down, I'd like to be able to find someone or some group to blame. I want glory, my glory, and that's threatened if I lose control or get consumed by fear. And so just like Habakkuk, I want God to fix things, and more often I want him to fix somebody who's not me. To my great frustration, we have raised the ad hominem attack to an art form. The most egregious example of that, obviously, is our current political culture. And so we get crooked Hillary and dangerous Donald. Or, if you want a better example, a greedy black hole of ambition versus rabies in human form. Those labels, by the way, are from one guy in the same blog. You don't have to wander far candidly, brothers and sisters, down into the response sections of Christian Reformed blog pages before you find this phenomenon is absolutely horrifying even there. Why dig deeper in our own hearts when the solution is as simple as an attack label? So we lose again the mandate to love one another, assume the best, listen carefully, repent of the beams in our own eyes, seek unity and reconciliation, especially with those who are different from us, even if it's costly. And my light becomes a cutting laser, and my salt becomes toxic. God lays out this human proclivity to Habakkuk in in an even more extreme way. He says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring from wineskins till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Do you see the objectification? Do you see the self-glorification at the expense of the diminishment of others? I 
am so guilty of this. And God says, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, Habakkuk. So that brings me to my last strategy for dealing with a world that by any rational measure is grossly and rapidly deteriorating. Marshalling my own resources, building a counter kingdom, exploiting the world's rules in my favor, humiliating the opposition, all those strategies. I love those strategies, but they all have fatal flaws. So, so what do I do? I'm tempted to label this last one uh, with some kind of comfortable euphemism along the lines of find something or someone or somewhere tangible and solid in which you can place your trust. Find your port in the storm. Find your white knight. Find your AAA-rated blue-chip rock-solid investment. Find your mountain retreat suitably fenced, stocked with enough food and ammunition to hold off the zombie apocalypse. That's what I want. Find my idol. That's how God frames it in Habakkuk 2.18. Of what value is an idol since a man carved it? Or an image that teaches lies for he who makes it trusts in his own creation. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. There is no breath, no spirit in it. Ten days before the General Assembly, one of our brothers, and I assume he's here, uh, Alex Shipman, is the pastor of um, the Village Church in Huntsville. And he posted something on his Facebook page. He said, we needed more than Presbyterian debate or Robert's Rules of Order here on the floor. He reminded us that what we need, what we only really need, is the Holy Spirit. And yet I nearly always find my, my hope somewhere else. A decent bonus, a new pastor, the next job, the next church, my family, my excellent educational credentials, another conservative on the Supreme Court, the emergence of a viable third-party candidate. The book of church order. No, I take that back. I never find my hope in the book of church order. Um, the next moderator. I've probably already dispelled any chance of hope that that's a justifiable place to go. But look, all of those things can be really good things. But what if? What if every one of them dissolves into lifeless, breathless dust? What am I actually tangibly left with? And I'm right there with Habakkuk in his watchtower, sobered and stunned by this inescapably broken world. So I hear God's final word of judgment, the last thing he says to Habakkuk in the entire book. In 2.20, he says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. But what about silent? Does that mean silent? But how long silent? At this point, I need to backtrack just for a moment to how God introduced this avalanche of correction and judgment on Habakkuk, all the way back to verse 4 in chapter 2. You'll probably recognize it more because Paul alludes to it in Romans 1.17, where it says, But the righteous shall live you can, you can complete it by faith, straight out of Habakkuk. 
That is the counter to every one of my personal self-centered strategies. And when my world or country or church or family seems to be spiraling out of control, the righteous will live by faith. But here's here's my deeper problem. It's the follow-up question that I nearly always ask when, or at least I want to ask, when it seems like just an extra portion of faith is what's being called for here. Is this faith thing really going to work? Are there any signs that it's working already? Working to what end? Well, to my ends, the ones I want, of course, and I'm back to my idols. See, I want my by faith stories to be Hebrews 12, 33, and 34. Conquering kingdoms, administering justice, gaining what's promised, quenching the fury of the flames, having my weakness turn to strength. That's what I want. And maybe that's what God has in store for us. I, I genuinely hope that it is. Because what I really, really don't want is the by faith stories in Hebrews 12, 37 and 38. Stoned, sawn in two, destitute and persecuted, wandering in deserts and caves and holes in the ground. And no, that's not a Hobbit reference. It does not count. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. In my head, I know that's the right answer. And even more because Jesus connected himself to that same temple. I know that only, not only that I can hope confidently in Jesus, but really he's my only hope. I know that's the only way I can can, can hope with what's horrible. That ain't it awful list that I kept for myself this past year. I know it's the only way I'm likely to stay, st- to stay sane between now and November. But, but what if the bleakest, worst-case scenario really happens? What if he or she really does get elected? What if I really lose my church or my job or my family? What if they find out the real truth about me, undiluted? What if the Babylonians at the gate become the Babylonians in, res- in residence, whoever the Babylonians happen to be for you. That's the reality that Habakkuk is facing. And the let all the earth be silent command is still ringing in his ears. So what's his actual response? And finally, I get back to the text that's in your worship guide. So briefly, seriously, briefly, I think Habakkuk does four things and they're worth emulating. I'm sorry again that it's not three but this time I will make them alliterate because this is probably the last time I'll get to exhort and I have to stretch my wings. So here we go. First, Habakkuk remembers. It's not printed in this text, but the first 75% of Habakkuk chapter 3 is him stepping back to recount the power and sovereignty of God, his wisdom and glory, his creative splendor and nation-shaking authority, his righteous wrath and divine judgment. Mountains writhe and the deeps roar. He remembers that there is no corner of the created universe, no microsecond in time, no random ruler or even molecule where God's will and counsel does not hold sway. Romans 8.28 is the tip of a planet-sized iceberg in comparison. Second, or so in in the face of that um, broken world, he remembers and he recalls. He prays over those things. But second, he repents. Repentance is obviously going to be um, a hot topic here at General Assembly. 
We're asking, what does it look like? When and where should we do it? Over what and whose sin? How do we make this more than mere words and translate it into, into action? For Habakkuk, if you go to right before the verses in your worship guide, also in 3.16, his repentance is heart-pounding, lip-quivering, bone-melting stuff. He's not introducing conditions. He's not talking about boundaries. He's lost his former better or better than the Babylonians rhetoric. He is beyond articulation. His repentance is groaning and desperate, a fearful, full-body experience. Maybe he's not Presbyterian after all. Or maybe we should become Habakbaterians. Third thing he does is he rests. And that rest is not mere passivity. It's robust. It's courageous. It's purposeful. It's confident waiting. Look what Habakkuk says. I will wait, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. And he's talking about, in that case, judgment to come on the world's evil. There's no more how long. There's no points of order or calling the question. It's patiently waiting. And if that's not enough, he then goes on to punctuate that point with a series of descriptions essentially involving the destruction of the entire economy of Judah. It is the Great Depression on steroids. No fruit, no oil, no food, no clothing, no capital, no cows to rebuild, nothing. It's all gone. It is plains of Gorgoroth territory before the fiery slopes of Mount Doom. But Habakkuk seems to be able to build a summer camp and take up residence there. Why? How? Because the Lord is in his holy temple. Because Jesus has won every victory that's worth winning. And that's actually important. And that's why and how Habakkuk's fourth response can be rejoicing. He says, yet. I love that word, yet. Nevertheless, but in contrast, take that broken world, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior, the Lord Jesus himself is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to go to dance on the heights. Look, let's be honest. Not many of us are rejoicing in the national conversation these days or the cultural direction. We may not be rejoicing about the politics back at our home church or the spiritual condition of our adult children or, and I know that's a stretch, this may be a stretch, the prospects of of listening in on committee reports and floor debate over the next three days. But that is the right strategy once we realize that we're not in charge, but we can actively and actually trust that Jesus is. So here, my encouragement, my exhortation to you is let's try to get to the yet, to remember and repent and rest and rejoice because no matter what or when Jesus um, really is in his holy temple. And he's always the king of this church. Now, I have been really restrained in my use of Lord of the Rings references, and you're welcome. But I want to wrap it up with a quote from Sam Gamgee, who is the hero in the Lord of the Rings. And if you have any doubt about that, let's have a debate offline. So as they climb the stairs to Kirith Ungol, the gateway into the dark and poisonous land of Mordor, two little hobbits, Frodo and Sam, 
are facing impossible circumstances on a ridiculously hopeless quest, and they're tempted to give up. And Sam says this, but I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures as I used to call them, I used to think that they were the things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and life was a bit dull, a kind of sport, you might say. But that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered, the ones that stay in the mind. Folks seem to have just been landed in them. Usually their paths were laid that way as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back, only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those that just went on. And not all to a good end, mind you, at least not to what folk inside the story and not outside of it call a good end. I wonder what kind of tale we've fallen into. So Sam then goes on to talk about stories of even darker places and deeper dangers, ones that go on past the happiness and into grief and beyond. And then he realizes he and Frodo are in the same story and asks finally, don't the great tales never end? And they don't. Like Sam, we are part of a much larger, endless, and true story. And it goes past the happiness, into grief, and beyond. Jesus told us it would be this way. And he's left us here because our broken world needs us to be able to tell and live the kind of story that's real, that's connected to truth and the hope of God's word and the beauty of Jesus' work and the Holy Spirit's power. And then after our quest is finished, I think that we too will be able to ask another one of Sam Ganji's questions. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And it will. How long? I don't know. But it will be, and Jesus will be worth the wait. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.